Okay, so we've been working through the Bible course. This is the first book where we say the story so far. I always feel at this point, like on the TV shows, we have to say, previously in the Bible course. So we started out here in Genesis. What were the two main themes we had in Genesis? Covenant. So creation first, (laughs) then covenant. So we had the creation story, God making the world, God making it good. And when he made humans, it was very good. But the humans kind of messed it up and disobeyed God. And it all went a bit wrong. Oh, no, we don't go down. I always think this is the fall. It's not yet. There's a little fall off the edge here. So they were sent out of the garden. But God was still faithful. And we heard of that covenant that God made with Abraham, that promise to Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, that he would be their God. God has the restoration plan from the very beginning. We then heard last week about how they ended up in Egypt in slavery. But through Moses, God released them from slavery. He brought them back out, and they spent rather longer than they might have wandering in the desert on their way to the promised land. But they eventually got there. During that time, God had given them two key things that I want us to remember today. The first, oh, creation covenant, Exodus and the promised land. He gave them the law. That's my beautiful picture of the tablets of stone. Do you like those? I thought that was very artistic of me on PowerPoint. So he gave them the law. Because they were becoming this new nation, they needed to know, how do we live as a nation? How is this going to work? How are we going to live good? How are we going to make it right? So he gave them the law to show for them how to become that new society. And slightly more questionable artistry here, he gave them the tabernacle. Obviously, you can see that's the tabernacle, can't you, people? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, housing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence with them. He'd been with them all the way through the desert, leading them as that pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And they'd built this tent, this tabernacle, that was God's dwelling place with them, representing his provision for them, his protection over them. And we're going to see what happens with these two things, the law and God's presence in the tabernacle, as we go through today's story. So, we're on judges and kings today. We've got a lot of people to get through this morning. So, I'm going to give you a little overview first of who's coming up. Hopefully, you'll recognize some of these names. We've got Joshua. Okay, we heard about him last week. Doesn't he look a happy chappy? Then we've got the judges. There's quite a few of them. Then we've got Samuel. You want to try and draw a beard on PowerPoint? Wait till you get to the crowns for the kings in a minute. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Saul in his crown because he's a king. Yeah. David and Solomon. Okay. So they're the people who are coming up. So we left last week, one of the judges mysteriously moves in that slide transition. (laughs) It's a bit disturbing. We left last week with Joshua, one of the two spies that at the beginning of their time in the desert had been sent out to, to check out the promised land. He was one of the two that came back and said, yes, it's brilliant, we can do it. And all the others said, oh, no, we can't, it's big and scary and there's giants. 
He finally was the one who led the people into the promised land. So here they are. They've spent 40 years wandering in the desert because of their fears, but now they've made it. They've got the law telling them how to live, how to make their society work and be a good place. They've got the presence of God with them in that Ark of the Covenant kept in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, when they arrive in the Promised Land, is kept in a place called Shiloh. So they've got God with them, protecting them, providing them. They've got the law to show them how to live. They're in the Promised Land. It is all finally going to be perfect as it was meant to be in the beginning. Or maybe not. So, we come to the book of Judges. Which goes here on this funny little bit. Joshua eventually dies, as people do. And once Joshua has died, the people start to forget about God. They start to forget about the law that God's given them, about how he showed them, this is how to live well, this is how to make your society work, this is how to be my people, my nation. They forget about it. And they forget about what that tabernacle represents. They forget that they can trust God as that firm foundation who is there for them, to provide for them, to protect them, to guide them. And so when they fail to follow the law, and they start to worship some other gods, because they've forgotten that actually God's got it covered, things go under, things go wrong for them. So they start here. They forget. They start turning away from the law. They start worshiping other gods, and things start to go bad. When things start to go bad, other nations start to come and attack them because they're not living the way they should be. So we come down the bottom here. And then they go, oh, no, God, it's all terrible. Save us. And God raises up someone called a judge, a leader. And the judge puts them back on the track. First of all, the judges say to them, hey, look, God gave us this thing called the law. Do you remember? Yeah? That's how we're supposed to live. We shouldn't be worshipping other gods. We shouldn't be doing all this other stuff. We need to be living the way God showed us, and then things will work out well. And so they get them to start living the right way again, so they start to come back up. They defeat whoever it is who was attacking them, and they come back up to the top again. And then everything's good again, and the people live as they should, and there's peace in the land. And then the judge dies, and they all forget again. And so they start forgetting and worshipping other gods and not following the law, and down they go again. And oh dear, because they're not following the law and they're not worshipping God, they come under attack again and things fall apart again. And they say, oh God, help us, it's all going wrong. And so God sends another judge, a leader, who comes in and says, hang on, hang on, look, you need to follow the law. You shouldn't be worshipping these other gods because we've got Yahweh, the one true God. You don't need to worship them. Be faithful to Yahweh. And the judge helps them to defeat the people who are coming to attack them. And they all start following God again. And they come back to the top again. And it's all good and fine. And then that judge dies. And the people forget again. And how long have we got this morning for this sermon? Because I I could go for hours on this one. It goes round and round and round. It's a spiral. And in fact, I sometimes think it shouldn't just be a loop round and round. But actually, this spiral 
should be going down each time. Because there's a sense in the book of Judges, as you read through each new judge that comes up, every time it's like one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two steps back. And things gradually sink lower and lower. And you get at the end of the book of Judges this horrific story which kind of sums up the state that the nation has got into. Um, The story is about one of the Levites, one of the priestly tribe who's traveling. Um, And I'll I'll spare you all the details for time, but basically he's traveling, he's got his concubine with him, and they're not going to make it to their destination by nightfall, so they stop off in one of the towns in Israel. They wait in the town square for someone to, you know, show them hospitality and take them in. Eventually, somebody does show them some hospitality and take them into his home for the night. As night falls, the men of the town all come and hammer on the door of this house and say, send out that Levite that you've taken into your house so we can rape him. Nice. And so the guy who's looking off and says, no, 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 don't do anything as terrible as that. I tell you what, I'll give you my virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. You can rape them instead, because that's okay, isn't it? And so instead of giving them the Levite to rape, they send out the virgin daughter. No, no, just the concubine, I think. Just the concubine gets sent out, and the men of the town abuse her till morning. Nice. In the morning, he opens the door of his house. There's the concubine, dead on the doorstep. And so he scoops her up onto his donkey and carries on his way. And then at the end of the book of Judges, we hear how that concubine gets chopped up into little pieces and they post a little bit of her to every single place in Israel to say, look, this is what our nation has come to. What are we doing? What are we thinking? This is how low things have got. So that spiral has gone all the way down. It's summed up by a quote at the end of Judges where it says, In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what should have been coming into the promised land with the law, with God's presence, didn't work out. Now, we're going to focus now on the very last judge, this guy called Samuel. He's actually got two books named after him. If I can find the right one, here we go. Here he is. One and two, Samuel. So Samuel was born to a lady called Hannah, who hadn't been able to have children, and she'd gone to, um, to the tabernacle to God uh, regularly and prayed and pleaded with God, please, Lord, give me a child. If you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you. And so eventually, she does have this baby, Samuel, and as soon as he's old enough, she takes him to the shrine, um, to the temple, to, to be looked after by the priest there, to live there, to serve under the priests. And he grows up there, serving Eli the priest. Now, it tells us in 1 Samuel 3 that the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
So there, weren't, there wasn't much of God actually speaking to individual people. But God called Samuel at night. As they were sleeping, Samuel hears this voice, Samuel, calling him, calling him. And at first he thinks it's Eli calling him, but eventually he realizes it's God calling him. And so, God, so Samuel becomes recognized as a prophet. It says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So Samuel's been established as, as the final judge, as a prophet of the Lord, who's connecting with God, bringing God's word to the people. Meanwhile, Israel, yet again, is under attack. They're fighting the Philistines. And it's a tough battle. Does that surprise you, David? Again, it's funny how that keeps happening, doesn't it? I wonder why it was happening. Do you think they've learned from the cycle yet? It's a tough battle, and right now, they're not winning. And they wonder, why is God letting us be defeated by the Philistines? Anyone want to volunteer to share why that is with them? Anyone got the idea? You'd think, after all of those cycles, they'd be getting it by now, wouldn't you? They haven't been following God. They haven't been following the law. And they've been worshipping other gods again. But then they have this brilliant idea. Let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the one that lives in the tabernacle, the really holy place, with the tent around it, that that only the high priest is allowed to go in once a year, And then it's with a rope tied to his ankle so they can pull him out just in case he dies while he's in there. That really, really holy place, yeah? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant from there and take it into the battle with us as our good luck charm. And then we'll win the battle. Slight problem with that. Now, in fairness, back in their 40 years wandering in the desert, they had carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. But that had been because God told them to. This was not because God told them to. This was them treating Yahweh, the one true God, like they would any of the other gods. You know, their their idols that they worshipped. Yeah, take the idol with us, and its magic power will win the battle for us. So they took the Ark of the Covenant into the battle ahead of them. But God hadn't told them to do this. Remember, this is God who created the world just by saying, let there be whatever, and it happens. The God who is that powerful, the God who brought them out of slavery slavery in Egypt through those plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea, who provided miraculous food for them in the desert, they tried to carry him into battle in their magic box to win the battle for them. Israel are defeated in this battle. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. So that presence of God that they'd had with them all that time saying, I'm here to provide for you, I'm here to protect you, has been taken by the Philistines. They aren't following God's law and God's presence 
or what they see as God's presence, has been taken from them. Now, as it happens, the Philistines have a bit of a problem with the Ark of the Covenant because whichever town they keep it in, stuff goes wrong. They, they get these dreadful plagues of boils and illnesses, and so this town goes, no, we don't want it, you can have it, and they send it to another town, and then everything in that town goes wrong. And so it's passed around, and nobody wants it, and in the end, they get some, a cart pulled by cattle, they stick it on the back of this cart, and shoo them off back to Israel, because they want nothing to do with it. But then Samuel comes in, and like the other judges, he sorts them out. He tells them, actually, this isn't about carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle. This is about quitting worshipping other gods. Trust in the one true God. Trust in Yahweh. Follow his ways. Live the way he's told you to. That's what's going to solve these problems. And not surprisingly, when they do that, they finally win the battle. But as is the case with all the judges, eventually Samuel is going to die. So he's getting old, and the people say to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They're asking for a king like the other nations. Now, let me just read to you, because Samuel's not happy about this. And so he goes to God. It says, this is um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 to 9. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So this demand for a king isn't a rejection of Samuel, it's a rejection of God. The reason Israel did not have a king up to this point is because God was supposed to be their king. And they've rejected that. They say, no, 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 we want a human king like all the other nations have. We want to be like them. And so God says, okay, if they want a king, give them a king. And so we're going to come into the time of the kings. Now, this is where we whiz through some people. So we start off with, initially, God instructs Samuel to anoint Saul as king, the first king of Israel. Saul is tall, he is dark, and he is handsome, a bit like my husband who's having a snooze over there. (laughs) Very similar. But Saul's not quite so good on the inside. And it goes a bit wrong for him. And so God says, we need a new king. This is cutting the story very short here. (laughs) Whizzing through many years. And so Samuel anoints a new king. 
King David, the great king of Israel. He's the youngest of eight brothers. He's the one who's disregarded, the the scrawny little brother who's sent out to look after the sheep. But God says, no, I want him because he is a man after God's heart. He's described later on as a man after God's heart. He's faithful to God. He talks with God. He listens to God. And he's obedient to God for a long time. But then his weakness for women leads him astray. He commits adultery with a woman called Bathsheba, who he spots having a bath on her rooftop, as you do. Be careful if you ever have a bath on the top of your house, ladies. It's not a good place, apparently. So he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then, upon finding out that Bathsheba has become pregnant, he arranges for Bathsheba's husband to go into battle on the very, very front line. You know that front line which are the first ones to get hit by the arrows or whatever. Yeah, he decides, yes, let's get him to be the first one in the line to be attacked. He arranges the death of Bathsheba's husband. So he's become an adulterer and a murderer. But out of this relationship... The child that Bathsheba has is Solomon, King Solomon. Now, Solomon is known for two main things. He's known for his wisdom and for the temple. Solomon asks God to give him wisdom, and so he becomes one of the wisest men that ever lived. Now, as a little aside, we've got some extra books down here which we won't go through because we could be here a long time, but these are the books of wisdom in the Bible. A lot of this is attributed to Solomon. He either wrote it or compiled it. The books of wisdom, a great gift. Something to note if you're ever reading those books, so Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. Being wisdom books, you have to read them slightly differently to any other book in the Bible. They are not telling the the history of what happened. So the books we've read so far have been history books. They've been accounts of what happened. Neither are they promises from God. This is where we need to be careful. They contain general wisdom, general truth. So you have in there, I think it's one of the Proverbs that says something like, uh, train up your child in the way they should go and they will not turn from it when they are old. Anyone heard that one? Yeah? And us parents cling to that, don't we? It's not a guarantee. It's general truth. Generally, if you bring your children up in the right way, they will follow that when they're older. But not always. It's not a guarantee. Yeah? And particularly not necessarily when they're teenagers. So bear that in mind. As you read things like the Proverbs, they are general truths but they aren't promises. They're general truths. But anyway, back to the temple. David had wanted to build a temple for God in place of the tabernacle. If you remember the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept was this tent, yeah, which as they'd been traveling around in the desert had been appropriate as they moved from one place to another. David wanted to build a permanent dwelling place for God, a temple. But God told David, no, it's not going to be you that does that. It's going to be Solomon. 
And so Solomon builds the temple, the dwelling place for God. Now, the temple has quite a detailed structure. So first of all, you've got the very outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So this bit of the temple, anyone could come into. Anyone could come in here. But then within that, you had the court of the women. Okay? So women were excluded from further in. So this is Israelite women were allowed here. If you were a Gentile, you were in the outer one. Israelite women come into the court of the women, whereas Israelite men can come into the court of the Israelites. They come a little bit closer. Then there's another little court inside that, which only the priests are allowed in. And then right in the very center is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is where God's presence was focused for the nation of Israel. And no, you couldn't just wander in here. There was a curtain across the entranceway, and only the high priest would go in there once a year after performing all of these cleansing rituals. And so now God's presence for them is here in the temple. And we're going to pause at that point in the story for today because I want us to think about what it's actually got for us in here. Let's get our people up again. If we remember in that big story, the goal, where we're headed for, is eventually to restore what was at the beginning when God had made the world very good, to restore the world over at this end to that very good state. And so we've been going along that journey Israel had come into the promised land with God's presence with them, with his law showing them how to live. They'd had judges who helped them to apply the law to their lives, who lead them in defeating their enemies. But as we saw, it wasn't enough. They still kept falling back. They've demanded a king like other nations. Surely that's going to be it. If you've got a king to lead you, Saul, the tall, handsome king, but deeply flawed in his heart. David, faithful to God, walking closely with him, but he still failed in his weakness to women. Solomon, a great king, he had amazing wisdom. He acquired great wealth for Israel, but even he could not restore what's broken in the world. He's the one, actually, in the book of Ecclesiastes, who says looking at life, having acquired great wealth, having had everything and experienced everything. And with all that wisdom, he says, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Even he can't bring it back to how it should be because none of them are perfect. None of them are God. And remember, during this time, God's presence for them is in now the temple. It was the tabernacle, now the temple. In the beginning, when it was Adam and Eve in the garden, God had walked with them in the garden, talked with them in the garden freely. God had traveled with them in the tabernacle later on. Now he's in this permanent temple housing his presence. What's the point of all this? No one person 
can restore what's broken in the world. The judges couldn't and the kings couldn't. We look for rules and strategies that are going to make the world better. But we can't achieve it all. I think it's interesting that we've hit this point with the kings, whereas apparently there's an election coming up sometime this week, so I'm told. And, and apparently people are struggling to decide who to vote for because they don't seem to think that any of them are really going to be able to solve the problems. Is that the job? I'm not good on politics myself, but that's the general message I'm hearing. It's like, well, who do we vote? Who's going to make this nation right again? No person can. No person can. Only God can. But the thing is, we know where the story ends up. We know that this storyline is going to take us back to a place of restoration with God. Because eventually, God is going to come to earth as a man, Jesus. He's going to live a perfect life like none of these leaders could. And he's going to die a perfect sacrifice to restore the world. And there's a couple of key verses. Let's see here. Oh, I've skipped a slide somewhere. Hang on. Here we go. It says in the New Testament, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That presence of God which was in the tabernacle, which was in the temple. Remember, I think on the previous bit there, that temple where Gentiles at the outside, then the women, then the Israelites could come a bit closer, the priests could come a bit closer, and then it was the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We are now his temple. And it says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God has now come as the Holy Spirit. His presence isn't in that little holy place in the temple. His spirit lives in us. And so take a moment to consider the weight of that. God's spirit, God's presence that was housed so carefully in the Ark of the Covenant, where they put it in the tabernacle so that no one could come too near. In the temple where you had that that layering of who was allowed to come close. You know, there's stories of of the Ark of the Covenant where, where they're carrying it along and people accidentally touch it and fall down dead because God's presence is so holy. That presence that they carried in the Ark of the Covenant is now inside us. Let's not be like the Israelites who disregarded the law, who worshipped other gods, and who thought they could win their battle by using God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant as as their good luck charm. I can carry it wherever we want. We can carry it into whatever battle we like to win our battles. You carry God's spirit in you, protecting you, providing for you, guiding you. 
Let's give that the respect it deserves. That is an amazing thing. So as we draw to a close now, I'm going to ask the band to come and lead us in worship and invite us just to take some time to know, to reflect on the significance of God's presence in us that now he is with us. No human could ever put things right. But now, because of Jesus, God's presence isn't limited to that one place. It is in each of us. So we can be close to him.